Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. So they're saying, you're testifying on your own. 
Jesus answered and said, even if I testify on my own behalf. So he's more or less saying, ah, don't worry about that law. Isn't it? I mean, it's really funny what Jesus does with the Bible. I just wish we would imitate him. So Jesus is clearly not overly concerned with this passage. And he says, even if I am testifying on my own behalf, my testimony is valid because I know where I've come from and I know where I'm going. You do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. That's a mic drop moment. You judge by, and keeping in mind, what's the context? What had just happened? Woman caught in the act of adultery was verse previous. He literally had just stood up from writing the names in the sand of the people who brought accusation and starts speaking and turns to them and says, you're judging by human standards. I judge no one. That context matters. So he goes on and says, uh, but I am a father uh, who sent me. In your, in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is valid. I testify on my own behalf, and the Father who sent me testifies on my behalf. Then they say to him, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you neither know my, uh, you know neither me or my Father. If you knew me, you would also know the Father. He spoke these things while he was teaching in the treasury of the temple, but no one arrested him, for the hour had yet not come. Isn't that funny? He was speaking in the treasury. They wanted to arrest him, but they didn't because it wasn't time. That's a nice little detail. I wonder when people write about us, not that we're Jesus, but when people write about us later, if they're like, yeah, they said all this stuff, and everybody wanted to kill them, but they didn't because it was time. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you wonder about these things. It's just an interesting thought. So a couple things need to be clarified. So last week we spoke about the closing of the Festival of Tabernacles. The Festival of Tabernacles was an eight-day feast, sometimes called the Tabernacle, or the, excuse me, the, the Festival of Booths. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was an eight-day feast where they would gather together, and they had two great themes. Does anybody remember last week when we talked about the, the, the first great theme of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was? Jesus stood in the water. Right. So water is the first great theme. They preach about water all the time. So remember when he said that he wrote their names in the dust? He was juxtaposing that against water. And he said, anybody come to me who's thirsty and I will give you water to drink, right? So the whole context that we talked about last week is, first of all, the first Feast of Tabernacles, for eight days they have tons and tons and tons of teaching about water. So he started this passage with the idea of I'm the light of the world. Jesus is, we're still on this last day of it. We've just finished the Feast of Tabernacles. So does anybody have any ideas about what the second great theme of the Feast of Tabernacles might be? Light. Okay? That's the context. So Jesus is the king of theatrics. Jesus is, uh, he is so great at these setups where he'll utilize backdrops and backgrounds. So the second great theme of the Feast of Tabernacles is light. If we take the arrangement of the Gospel of John as it is in a common text, the incident of the woman caught in the act of adultery that interrupted Jesus as he was teaching in the temple. So Jesus was teaching in the temple, 
and then got interrupted to deal with this woman. Remember, they threw her at his feet right in the middle of his, right in the middle of temple. Jesus deals with that and then resumes teaching. So this is all one big exchange that's happening. So he goes back to teaching. And in this teaching, Jesus speaks and the religious leaders grumble and they begin arguing about Jesus. And amongst themselves, they're having this debate about how Jesus can't be the light of the world because they know what he's quoting. Interestingly enough, what he's quoting is Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 is the people walking in darkness have seen a great light and that light has come. Jesus is speaking that when he says, I'm the light of the world. Interestingly enough, the big debate they were having among the religious leaders was that the Messiah couldn't come from Galilee. Okay? Jesus, was that was what they were saying. Because we don't have time to get into this. But there's lots and lots of differing Old Testament passages about where the Messiah was going to come from. Just the way it is. So, they didn't believe he could come from Galilee. Galilee was where the rebels were. Galilee was not where the religious elite would come from. So, the thought is, you can't come from Galilee because uh, and be the Messiah because the Messiah's got to come through Jerusalem. It's got to be maybe somebody from a priesthood family. So, Jesus quotes to them in his teaching, I am the light of the world, to deal with their arguing about where he's from. Does anybody have any bright ideas about what Isaiah 9, when it says the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and that that light would come from, where do you think Isaiah 9 says the great light will come from? Galilee. So Jesus is quoting, because they would have had the entire book of Isaiah memorized. So when Jesus says this, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew the next verse. And the way that Jewish rabbis would debate is they would quote a verse, but what they were really quoting actually was the next verse. But it was it was a play to see if you knew it well enough to know what the next verse was, because if you didn't know what the next verse was, you didn't get the gig. It was a play on how well you knew the text. So Jesus throws this verse out, but also knows that the next verse says he's coming from Galilee, which is exactly what they've just been arguing about. So the first thing is that. The second thing is Jesus is dealing with and speaking on behalf of the ceremony that has just happened. Now, I know immediately your thought is, what ceremony? Well, remember, we've already went back to John chapter 7 and recognized where the Feast of Tabernacles is the context. That's the backdrop. So, the backdrop of this is this feast that lasts for eight days. Now, we talk about the water element, but the light element is absolutely incredible. Because the light element of this is, during this eight-day feast, there was a huge 75-foot, there was actually four of them, they believe, 75-foot tall menorah that they would light. To give you context, that's seven stories tall. Each of these candles, lanterns, menorahs, had a 220-gallon oil reservoirs that they drew from. This was a big deal. And they would say that, uh, in fact, you, you should YouTube it because there's some really cool videos of these rabbis talking about this feast and what would happen. And they get really excited because they stand there and they start talking about what it would look like. But they would say that every, so on the first day they would light one, and then every other day they would light a 
about the man. But during this time, it's very common that every person in Jerusalem would light lanterns and menorahs and candles outside in their courtyard. So by the time the eighth day, literally they said that all of Jerusalem could be seen from hundreds of miles away. I don't know if it was hundreds, but they would say that you could see it all the way over and past the Sea of Galilee because it was so lit up. Which, interestingly enough, the a way that the, something they would say about that is they would chant that a city on a hill cannot be So Jesus is, by the end of this feast, um, on the eighth day, the whole city of Jerusalem is one solid light. So this city um, would then be lit just more and more and more and more. And on the eighth day, they would dance all night long. They would literally party all night. They wouldn't go to bed. So they would, until dawn, so there would be this pronouncement that would happen at dawn, but they would dance all night. And they would do this. Does anybody have any ideas of why this particular thing happened? Now, remember the Feast of Tabernacles, they also slept in those um, uh, those shelters that they made. And they did so to represent the tabernacle through the wilderness. And we talked about last week how the high point, the apex of everything they interpreted within their legacy they heard is the Exodus story. So the being in the wilderness, they would they would celebrate that we were in the wilderness and we had these shelters, these places, whatever it's called, kibbutz, these makeshift shelters. So does anybody else remember something about light that was with them in the wilderness? As they as soon as they left Egypt, there was a cloud and a pillar of fire that led them the night. So all of this lighting that they were doing was representative of the Exodus story, of the pillar of light that led them through darkness. Now there's tons of really cool stuff about that. I don't have time to get into that. There's all kinds of neat ideas about how this works. Um, I did like, I won't tell you how much I read. You, you're supposed to do it. Hours and hours of reading about how the Jewish people thought about the, the pillar and the cloud they thought it might have been, how they thought it might have been, if it was real, meaning like literal fire and like literal cloud, how that would have happened. But suffice to say that this was central to their story. And the pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness is the same fire that then when they established the tabernacle of David fell upon, well, the tabernacle of Moses, later the tabernacle of David, fell upon the sacrifice. And it was the priest's job to keep that burning. That's why there was the issue, remember, with um, the sons who offered strange fire? So that's fire that didn't originate from God. It came through the strange fire. The reason is because God lit the altar himself. That's kind of cool. So this pillar of fire was a big deal. Oh, and by the way, here's another really cool thing. Do you remember the instance where Moses had the idea that he was supposed to lead people through an exodus. Where did that happen? On top. 
top of a mountain with a what? A bush that was on fire but didn't burn. So do you realize that the people of Israel actually believed that the same bush that burned that told Moses, that, that revealed to Moses the God who is a deliverer is the same fire then that led them through the wilderness under the pillar and the same fire that lit the altar of sacrifice and was the same fire that was the priest's job to keep it burning. It's a big deal. Like this is central to who they are. And so, um, in fact, they said that the, the thing that they wept the most about when they lost the temple was that the fire had lingered. See some metaphor there? So, all of this is central to the way the Jewish people thought. So the Exodus story is central. Jesus comes in and think about how Jesus does this. So Jesus begins and says, I am the bread of life. How does that relate to the Exodus story? Manna. So then Jesus says, everybody who's thirsty, come unto me and drink. Well, how does that relate to the Exodus story? They needed water. Moses smote the, the rock and water came out of it. Jesus says, I'm the light. This represents this pillar of fire that, that moved with them through the wilderness. Over and over, all of these Hebrew parallels of the Exodus story, which was once again the apex of uh, Jewish thought, Jesus would draw from. So Isaiah 60, Jesus utilizes uh, as well. Isaiah 60 is well known about light. Arise and shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Darkness might cover the earth and thick darkness the people, but the Lord will arise. His glory will come, and the nations will come into the light, and the kings to the brightness thereof. The sun will no longer be the light by day, nor brightness shall be the moon. Uh, excuse me, shall the moon give light by night, but the Lord will be the everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. The sun will go down no more, or the moon will not withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. The days of mourning will end. I mean, do you see this? This is huge to who they are. So interestingly enough, the apex, once again, the thread of the scripture. I had this conversation last night on Twitter with somebody. I'm trying not to be part of any Twitter argument. I was not. Just to be clear, I wasn't. But where people are, uh, are having this, this conversation about what's the gospel, I really don't understand at what point we got the idea that the way that the, 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 the gospel is that Jesus died and rose again. That is not the gospel. If that is the gospel, then Jesus and the disciples never got to preach the gospel. Sorry. is God's priority. That's the gospel. The gospel is poor people cared for, lame people healed, oppressed people liberated. That's the gospel. Jesus' death and resurrection is called atonement. That's different. 
that's ever been liberated has been able to know about atonement. But thank God, atonement doesn't limit the gospel. Because God has always been delivering people who were captive. That's just what God does. And the interesting thing about our God is do you realize that historically, this is actually proven, historically speaking, the God Yahweh, the God of the Hebrew Bible, which is in our Bible, it's not actually called the Old Testament. It's called the Hebrew Bible. We call it the Old Testament. It's another Bible that's in our Bible that we have written. So as soon as people say that we are in an interfaith relationship or interfaith religion, you should just show them the Bible because we have the Bible from another religion in our Bible. Sorry. It's just the way it is. Like the, the, the Jewish Bible is in our Bible and we're good with it. So the reality of it is when you look through this story, the Jewish people, the people of Israel were the first people ever to conceive of a God or to know a God who liberated oppressed people. See, the way you discerned your God was only as powerful as your army. Through all human consciousness, and so the people of Israel. The, as soon, that's why what would happen is as soon as your country was defeated and another army came in and defeated you and overwhelmed you, you embraced their God. Because their God must have been more powerful than your God. Otherwise, you wouldn't have lost. I know it's hard for us to think like this, but, but that's what would happen. Do you realize that the, the amazing thing about the people of Israel is they're the first people that we can find in history that went into captivity by an oppressing other country and didn't take on their God, that their God liberated them as they held fast to what that faith meant. So we have a liberating God. The first time that God speaks to Moses, what he says is, I've seen, I've heard my people's cry, and I'm going to deliver them. This had never happened before in all of human history. They had never, because something, you had either done something wrong. If you were in captivity, you'd either done something wrong or you were worshiping the wrong God. This God is bent towards the oppressed. This God is bent not towards the people who are in power, but he says, my power is leaning towards the oppressed people. That had never happened before. So that thought for the people of Israel was huge to them. We can't understand that because I have to be very honest with you. We're the oppressors in the world today. Sorry. We don't have the boot of another empire on our necks. We're the empire that has our boot on other people's necks. It's just the reality. Now, I'm not saying that we, are, we don't help people, but the truth of it is we could never understand what it's like to be the people of Israel because we've never had an invading army come into our country and oppress us for 100 or 400 years, right? So we can't really fathom what that would be like. So it's hard for us to identify with it. But our God is the God that lends himself to the needy and to the broken and to the hurting and to the poor. And so 
that's what makes our God unique from our God through Scripture. So, a few things to note. The Hebrew people's exodus out of slavery and Yahweh's complete identify, uh, identification with them is the pattern for, uni- for the universal journey of liberation. Jesus, so from the burning bush, when God first says to Moses, I want to set people free, to Jesus, he's sermon, the, the opening of Jesus is what? Blessed are the poor. So from Moses to Jesus, the theme has always been liberating of people who are on the underbelly of the system. This is why Paul's Magna Carta, the apex of Paul's writing in Galatians Galatians 3.23 says there's no longer Jew or Greek or male or female or slave or free. There, that was like, to, to the people of that time, that would have sounded like um, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Do you know how big that is? That's what it would have been like. Like nobody had talked like that before. He upended classism. He upended racism. He upended genderism. I don't think that's a word. Uh, but he upended all of these, all of these models. And that's what. But that's what God was always doing. So what happens here is we then read the Exodus story and we just think that's something God did then. But that's who God is. That's the first way that people ever identified with who this God is. So Jesus stands and says, "I'm the light of the world." At the end of this magnificent feast where for eight days they'd been lighting these things and they had been reciting these incredible stories and talking about this is the God that delivers, this is the God that that delivers. In fact, at the end of their all-night dance party that they would do, I'm sure they did the wobble. Just to clarify. The first wobble happened that the preachers had in my head. Um, Is that they would pronounce the Song of Moses. Now, if you want to read where the Song of Moses is, Song of Moses is found in Exodus chapter 14. Does anybody have any ideas what the immediately preceding verses are? Where the pillar of fire shows up and leads them out of Egypt. So then they sing the Song of Moses, which is a song of deliverance from Egypt. So they would light these seven-story tall lanterns and sing the Song of Moses. And in the light of that, and in that, with that as a backdrop, Jesus says, I am the light. Jesus, like, I don't think he used the mic, but if so, he should drop it regularly. That's incredible. Like, that should be, I am the light with this huge thing. They would take, so the young priests would have to climb ladders. And what they would do is they would take their old priestly garments and use those to form wicks. To keep things burning. So these young priests would climb a seven-story ladder. This is literally happening right behind Jesus in the temple courtyard as he says, I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, you do not need to live in darkness. So Jesus says this, and then exemplifies it. It's obvious that he is the primary healer of the poor and the powerless. Liberation focuses on freeing people from religious, political, social, and economic oppression. Remember, 
this may be the most important thing I say today. Light is not so much what we directly see as the thing by which you see everything else. It's the thing that allows you to see everything else. We think we're supposed to invite people to see Jesus. We're to invite them to allow Jesus to let them see everything. Jesus is the light. And, oh, by the way, Jesus has always been, if you read what we said, he's always been lighting the way. He's always been providing a light in darkness. And it doesn't, and dark, and it's, I should say this, darkness is not witchcraft in this context. In this context. They didn't have Wiccans in Israel. Good. Right? Ozzy Osbourne had not bit the head off a bat yet. So, they didn't even have this stuff. Alice Cooper had not done schools out for the summer yet. So, that wasn't even a thing. So, when you see what is happening in this context, Jesus is not saying, come to me who's the light. He's saying, allow light to lead the way. So, Jesus proclaims that the mystery that is Christ is the light of the world, illuminating the path forward from greed from oppression and from violence. Because if you are someone who is greedy and oppression, you have to defend it up front when it happens. It leads the way. If you are, are determined to protect and defend because you have a model of scarcity, it will always the way to happiness. They're not going to take what you have. And Jesus is showing us an abundance model where we don't sell the light on Sunday mornings at an extra cost. But the light has been there since the beginning. The light is the thing that we see always. And everybody sees that. So when they experience love, it's light that's showing up for us. When they're kind, when they're caring, when they're compassionate, when they show empathy to somebody who's in need, light shows up for them. We cannot conclude without mentioning that Jesus gives us the same designation. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus proclaims, you are the light of the world. same way that Jesus said, I am the river. If you drink of me, you become a river. He says, I am the light. And then if you stand in that, you reflect it. You become the light. So we'll close with this idea. God hears the cry of the poor. And we, created in God's image and likeness, must do the same in order to be light. Liberated people liberate people. 
evil, treat evil. Loving, love the people, love people. That's what it is. That's that is the gospel. And and I don't care what they call it, and I don't care what name they use or what creed they might pray in order to embrace it. Jesus is the light, and He invites us to embrace Him. And so, as we close this morning, I think it's it's a really interesting thing to think about this backdrop. So Jesus has this. He deals with judgment. He deals with the religious police that that are bearing down with their load. And then he turns and says, "Come on up." And we don't get to pick. Nobody picks side or side. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.